I'm Philip. It's great to see you. I lead the church here. If it's your first time, hope you're having a brilliant time with us. And if it's your 101st time, I hope you're having a brilliant time with us as well. Uh, we're in a series of talks from the book of Acts. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 7 this morning. If you're new to this series of talks, Acts really tells the story of the first church, effectively. That's what Acts is. It's telling the story of the first church in first century Jerusalem. And if you've been with us so far, you'll see this story as it's been unfolding. We've learned how this first church in Jerusalem has survived some pretty extraordinary challenges and is growing uh, with extraordinary rapidity, extraordinary speed, really. And we're going to be in chapter 7 this morning, and we're going to rejoin a guy called Stephen, who we left a couple of weeks ago at the end of chapter 6. And if you remember, Stephen is about to give his defense in a court of law. So Stephen's about to give his defense in a court of law, having got into all kinds of trouble speaking about Jesus. And uh, it's interesting that the approach Stephen takes, because if I was in a court of law, and this is a pretty hostile one that Stephen's facing, let's be honest, I'd, I'd be pretty keen to give a kind of winsome defense of why I really ought to be innocent, why perhaps I should be set free. Think of most court trials that we see, the ones that get televised or publicized. The defendants are usually fairly keen to show that they are innocent and that they should be set free. Well, St- Stephen's tactic is a little bit different to that. He kind of goes on the offensive. Rather than being on the defensive, Stephen goes on the offensive and effectively challenges those that are accusing him. So it's a pretty interesting tactic that he takes. Rather than being defensive, he goes on the offensive. What I want to look at this morning is three things. The accusations that Stephen faces, the challenges that Stephen gives, and the good news that Stephen shares. The accusations he faces, the challenges he gives, and the good news that he shares. Now, this is a long passage this morning. It's 50-odd verses long. Um, and it's really hard. <laughs> uh, it's a really hard passage to, to speak on. Uh, I found it very difficult, I have to be honest, in, in preparation. It's the longest speech in the whole of Acts, and it's part of it can be quite obscure. And so just to be authentic with you, I've taken a lot of help from a guy called Tim Keller, who's a church leader and speaker and writer in America, and he's really helped me to try and bring what I hope is something helpful to you, because it's quite hard, and I found it quite hard this week. So, first of all, the accusations that Stephen faces. The accusations that Stephen faces. Um, I'm sure we all agree that facing accusations is never much fun, whether they be light or, or harsh or fair or unreasonable. Um, those of you who know me well will know that I'm quite a competitive soul, especially on the sports fields, quite keen to win if I can. That's how I've been really since about yay high. And um, I became a teacher a few years ago, and I was fortunate enough to get to teach both in the classroom and on the sports field. And in my second year of being a pretty competitive teacher, uh, obviously my coaching credentials were pretty significant because they gave me the under-8s football team uh, to coach, which I took on with with due gusto, uh, and because I was pretty keen to win, whatever we were doing, as I always am. And um, we were playing this game, and we were kind of five or six nil up, I think, pretty, pretty quickly. Uh, and I was thinking, well, it's, you know, under, under, under nines here, under eight, whatever they were, eight, nine years old. Probably need to kind of rotate a few players on and off, try and keep the score relatively reasonable. I genuinely didn't want the other team to have a completely miserable afternoon. So I was kind of subbing some of the better players off, bringing some of the lesser players on, even going down to kind of just six aside rather than seven sides, try and keep the game balanced. And the game finished, and then we won by lots, but it was fine. The other team weren't too uh, demoralized, and I thought that was kind of job done, really. We'd won, tick, and the other team were relatively happy in their boys were prepared to play football again rather than being completely trounced. Tick, tick. The next day, the headmistress came to find me and said, Philip, I'm terribly sorry. We've got, 
I had a bit of a complaint about you from one of the parents. I was like, oh gosh, what have I done now? Because I racked up a few complaints in my first couple of years. I thought, what have I done now? And uh, the headmistress said, well, it's, it's, um, it's one, one of the dads, Mr. Bonner. And Mr. Bonner's son was probably the best player on the team. So Mr. Bonner's made a complaint against you. Uh, he's very, very cross that you took off, his, took off his son during the game. And he's accused you of not being sufficiently competitive. <laughs> what? Seriously? <laughs> I was like, you can accuse me of many, many things. You cannot accuse me of that. And I had to go and meet with this guy and explain why, actually, I am quite competitive, but I was just trying to keep the score relatively reasonable. I was genuinely accused of not being sufficiently competitive. Now, accusations are not much fun, and Stephen's accusations are far less fun than the ones that I faced. He's facing some far more significant accusations, obviously. Basically, we can see in the end of chapter 6 what Stephen has been accused of. He's been accused, very simply, of saying, because of Jesus Christ, we first century Jews in Jerusalem, we no longer need the temple and we no longer need the law. That's what he's been accused of saying. He's accused of claiming that because of Jesus, the temple and the law are effectively obsolete. Those are the accusations that he is facing and that he's about to defend himself or go on the offensive against in this court scene. Now, we need to understand why that is a big deal. Because for us in 21st century Kingston, the, the Old Testament law, the temple in Jerusalem, doesn't necessarily resonate with our daily lives, does it? So what is it a big deal about the temple? Well, for Jews in the first century, the temple is a big deal. And if you know your Old Testament, you will know that. So they would hark back to 1000 B.C., when King David got this thing in his heart to build a temple for God. And of course, his son Solomon was the one that did it. And the temple was a dwelling place for God, a place where heaven and earth would meet, a place that was designed with intricate perfection to try and mirror the holiness and purity of God, and a place where sacrifices for disobedience against the law would be carried out. And then, brief history lesson for you, in the 6th century BC, the Israelites are exiled by the enemy Babylonians, and the temple is destroyed, and some of them eventually return from exile to rebuild the temple. Then in the second century BC, the temple's destroyed again. And actually, when Stephen is speaking, the rebuilding project is actually almost finished. It's certainly underway and almost finished. So he's speaking at the time of this second rebuilding project. The temple is almost complete, having been destroyed many, many years before. And the accusation is that Stephen is saying the temple is redundant. And hence the outcry that he faces this is the centerpiece of our religion. This is the dwelling place of God. This is part of our identity, and we're about to return it at any moment to its original glory. And you're suggesting that it's no longer of any use? You can see why he's in big trouble. It's not a perfect example, because we haven't got any obvious comparisons, but I guess for us, maybe think about the Houses of Parliament, perhaps. So if you follow the news recently... You might have noticed that there is a suggestion that the Houses of Parliament are falling into such disrepair that they're going to need to be repaired. So the Speaker of the House of Commons has said he reckons it's going to cost about £3 billion, well, taxpayers' money, to repair and refurbish the Houses of Parliament. And for those five years, MPs will need to move out. That's the current suggestion that might need to happen. So imagine that during these five years of refurbishments and MPs moving out, someone says, do you know what? I don't think we need the Houses of Parliament after all. We could, we, we could do without them. We could, we could find another, another alternative. Now, some of you are kind of nodding, going, yeah, I think that's a good idea. Others of you, looking a bit kind of, for some people, the, the heritage of our parliamentary democracy is a very precious thing. People say, what, the Houses of Parliament? The buildings that were first established in 1100? 
that were rebuilt after a fire in 1835, all of the decisions that have been made in the corridors and chambers of power, how can you do away with the Houses of Parliament? Some people might say. Not you lot, clearly, judging by your <laughs> current reactions. But for the first century Jews in, Jer- in Jerusalem, their abhorrence at the idea of the temple being done away with is exponentially more than that. And then the second accusation that Stephen is facing is that he apparently is suggesting that the law, the Jewish Torah, the law of God handed down to the Jewish people, is that also obsolete, Stephen? And again, for the Jews, that's such a precious thing. That's who they are. That's who we are, the Jews would say in the first century. It's the law that God gave for human flourishing and for his glory. It's how we honor God. We were given it 1,300 years ago. God's law is pure and good and holy. And you, Stephen, seem to be suggesting that we don't any longer need it. So if you went back to our Houses of Parliament analogy, imagine that as the five years refurb is taking on, not only is it suggested that the buildings are no longer redundant, but somebody else says, do you know what? All the laws that were passed in the Houses of Parliament, I think we could do away with those as well. We don't really need all of those laws. Now, at that point, you really would get an outcry, surely. People would be sort of, anarchy. We can't just do away with all oh, The law of the land is essentially good. We need it for human safety and flourishing. There would be outcry in our nation if we decided to do away with the law of the land. And again, for Stephen, for the first century Jews, this is far more raw even than it is for us. And that's why, in his culture, at his time, the punishment for blasphemy or heresy, which is what he's being accused of, is potentially a death penalty. And so with all of that in mind, that's why chapter 7, if you have got it in front of you, that's why chapter 7 begins with the high priest, who's effectively the judge, saying very pointedly to Stephen, is this so? And Stephen needs to answer, basically, what do you believe about the temple and what do you believe about the law? Like I said before, Stephen effectively goes on the offensive. He gives three challenges in response. Three challenges in response. Now, as I mentioned before, this is a long, long speech. I've been, going to, I've been known to give the occasional lengthy sermon in my time. This blows any of that out of the water. Stephen goes on for a long time, 50 plus verses. So I'm not going to read the whole thing out. What he does is effectively sum up the whole of the Old Testament. That's pretty much what he does. So he tells his Jewish audience a kind of a national narrative. So if I was to tell you a national narrative of the British nation over the last thousand years, I might choose the technique of picking out the key characters, the key faces and names that we can all hang something of our national narrative on. So I'd go back to 1066 and say, William the Conqueror, and you'd all kind of nod and recall that year seven history lesson that you got so bored in all those years ago. Then we'd fast forward to Henry VIII and Elizabeth I in the 16th century. And Oliver Cromwell and the foundation of democracy in Parliament in the 17th century. And Queen Victoria in the 19th century. Winston Churchill in the 20th century. And Elizabeth II in the 21st century. We would be able to hang our history, wouldn't we, to some degree, on those key characters. And Stephen does exactly the same thing. He basically goes through the Jewish history and says, of course, we had Abraham, didn't we? Abraham, the founding father of our nation. We had Moses who led us, sorry, we had Joseph. He talks about Joseph after Abraham. Joseph who was sold into slavery. Moses who led the people of Egypt out of slavery. He mentions King David and King Solomon and the prophets. He takes them through a national narrative from Abraham pretty much up to the present day. And in doing so, he then gives these three challenges. Three challenges. He hits the issue of the law. It's the issue of the law, first of all. And he basically says, no, 
the law isn't obsolete at all. The law is good. Moses gave you the law. The law is holy and good. It's perfect, in fact. The problem is you can't obey it. You can see how he's going on the offensive, on the challenge. And he goes through the whole of the Old Testament and says, if we look back in our history, Jewish people, we can see we've never been very good at obeying the law. We didn't obey it under Moses, he says. We didn't obey it under Aaron. He quotes a prophet called Amos and said we didn't obey it very well under him. He says the law of God is good. It's just that we're not very good at obeying it. And so he's beginning to imply, listen, if obedience to the law is what saves you, then we have a problem. You have a problem, is his challenge. And then he mentions the temple, the next accusation that he was given. So he comes up with a challenge with the temple. He said, okay, 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 let's again look through our history. Let's scan back through our history and see what the issue with the temple is. And he makes an incredible claim, a very bold claim. And he says, if you look through our history, the temple's never been the only place where God could be. And he says, look at Abraham. God appeared to Abraham in modern-day Iraq. No temple there. Look at Joseph. God appeared to Joseph in Egypt. No temple there. God appeared to Moses in the wilderness. No temple there. And he builds this argument and says, look, you can't put God in the box. He's never been restrained or constrained by anyone or anything. Even when there was a temple under Solomon, Stephen says. He quotes a prophet who says, God does not dwell in houses made by hands. He's building this argument. The temple is good but it doesn't contain or define or restrain God. It's no longer, we don't need the temple, Stephen's saying. God can appear to whomever and wherever he pleases. You can see why he's building up a sense of challenge. But he also is introducing more of a challenge because, of course, the Jewish audience know that the temple is not just where God dwells, it's also where, it's also where one key part of the law has to take place. So the temple is where Mankind's disobedience to the law is dealt with through a sacrificial system. So now the problem is really serious, or the challenge is really serious. Stephen is saying the temple is a place where the law takes place, the law is good, you can't obey it, and the temple actually is not the be all and end all anyway. So his challenge is, is pretty serious. The law is good, you can't obey it, and the temple, if not obsolete, is not the be all and end all. Now, at this point, I guess we kind of need to take a little bit of a pause or a sidebar, don't we? Because you might be sitting here saying, law of God? I don't even agree or want a law of God in my life. There are a number of objections to God's plan for how humanity should live. Lots of them are very good, reasonable objections. You might say, actually, I don't think God's law is good. I've seen Christians or churches or history seeming to claim to be enacting God's law, and no good has come from it. But if you look at what the Bible has to say about the law of God, the Bible summarizes the law and says the law of God can be summarized in one phrase. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's how God's law is summarized in the Bible. And I would defy anybody, I think, really, to, to say that if humanity lived by that law, love our neighbors as ourselves, the world would not be surely a radically different place. That's the law of God in, in, in a nutshell, to love to love him and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Well, you might say, I don't really want to obey God's law. It might be good, fine. I don't want to obey it. Again, perfectly reasonable objection. I guess to that I might say, well, which law of life will you obey then? Which code will you live by? You might not call it a law, but everybody, all of the people that I know, will live by some kind of system, some kind of code. 
So which one will you choose? Do whatever makes me happy. That's what some of my friends would say. That's, that's the law they live by. Do whatever makes me happy. I guess the problem with that is what about if somebody else's pursuit of happiness harms you or those that you love? Or what about if your pursuit of happiness harms others? What happens then? I think that we, surely we know instinctively as a society that we want something better, don't we, to live by than every man for himself. Or maybe the code might be to live a good moral life. Again, I've got friends who would say that's how I live, a good moral life. I guess the challenge with that is how do you know if it's good enough? How do you know if it's good enough? Who says so? How is it decided? And Stephen also, having addressed the issue of the temple and the law, he then goes on to make a third challenge. Gives a third challenge. He says, guys, I've noticed something else. I've noticed as I look through our history together, Abraham all the way through to now, I've noticed a pattern. Every time God sends a deliverer or a saviour, you reject that saviour and persecute him. So again, pretty challenging uh, premise. He said, I look at Joseph, and Joseph we rejected. He was appointed to save his family, but he was sold into slavery in Egypt. He says, look at Moses. He was appointed to lead the people out of slavery in Egypt, but he was rejected and had to flee. And then he was rejected again in the wilderness. Stephen says, look at all the prophets. We've just rejected them one after another, after another, after another. And with a degree of sarcasm in verse 51, Stephen says, which of, the father, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And I guess if I'm, as I've been mulling over this this week, that's the kind of the nature of the human heart in some ways. It seems to me the human heart is positioned to, if not reject God, then resist him. And we can say, well, that's what non-Christians do, and Christians don't do that. But it seems to me, and my own experience of this week, that we can conclude on pretty good historical, textual, archaeological evidence that, that Jesus Christ did rise from the dead, that his claims to be God therefore were true, and then not want to submit to his teaching on how to live our life. So like I said, Jesus teaches me to love my neighbor as myself. I found that specific thing, in literal terms, neighbors, really hard this week. A couple of neighbors had no desire in my heart to love them at all. My heart is not naturally inclined to submit to God and to obey him and to follow his teaching. And so Stephen's argument can be summarized like this. You don't need the temple. You do need the law, but you can't obey it. And God's savior always gets rejected and suffers. And so having given these points with kind of subtlety and increasing sort of clout, he then brings it to a really strong conclusion in the end of the passage, which should appear on the screen behind me. It's in verses 51 to 53. Stephen brings to a conclusion the clout of his arguments. And he says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the, fathers, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, who you, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. And really, Stephen is summarizing his argument in verses 51 and 53. He's saying, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart. What he means is, you need a new heart. 
So uncircumcised heart is the Jewish way of saying you have a spiritually hard heart. He says you might be into external law-keeping, offering sacrifices, uh, honoring the Sabbath, circumcision, food laws, that kind of thing, but you need a new heart. And then he says, just to hammer his point home in verse 53, you don't obey the law anyway. So if we sum up where we are. Now, bearing in mind that the Christian gospel means good news, (laughs) bearing in mind the Christian gospel means good news, Stephen's in a courtroom He's facing serious charges and rapidly infuriating his audience with his defense. So much so that a death penalty is around the corner. Doesn't seem to be much good news, either for him or for his audience, or indeed at the moment for us, perhaps. We need to obey God's law, and we can't. So final point. What is the good news that Stephen shares? If you look hard for it, hard enough for it, is there. What is the good news that Stephen shares? It's actually in this last passage. If we bring up the passage again, that last bit, verses 51 53, it's in there as well. Verse 52. They killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. I promise you, it's in there if we look hard enough. So remember, there's this pattern. We need to obey the law, but we can't. We can't ignore that. So what do we do? Stephen has an answer. The righteous one. Jesus, the righteous one, is Stephen's answer. Now, hardly ever in the scripture is Jesus called the righteous one. I think only once in scripture is he called the righteous one. That's a pretty appropriate name for him, but why does Stephen choose it here? Well, because to be righteous means to be somebody who has fulfilled the law. That's what it means in that context and that concept. How do you fulfill the law? It strikes me there are two ways to fulfill the law. Let me give you an example. Kingston one-way system, those of us who've spent many hours driving around that. You know those yellow hatch lines that appear in between the lights? And you can't stop on those, can you? No. And if you do, bad things happen to you. Well, I had an experience the other day where I was coming through the lights, and I know I can't stop on those yellow white lines, and I'm thinking, I reckon I could make it through the green light, beyond the yellow lines, and I'll be safe. So I'm like inching my car forwards, come on, I can almost get across there, please. And of course, I come to a grinding halt on the yellow hatch lines. What happens? The beloved Kingston Borough Council send me a little letter and I get fined. I get a penalty notice. So it strikes me there are two ways that I could have obeyed that law. I could have, sorry, there are two ways I could have fulfilled that law. I could have obeyed it, which would be what I would suggest from a King's Church policy point of view. (laughs) Or, which is what I did, you pay the penalty, which is what I had to do. Both ways fulfill the law to obey it or to pay its penalty. Now, once I had paid its penalty, the law was fulfilled. They had no more claim on me, did they? Even Kingston Borough Council would not have written to me again asking for a second penalty notice. The law was fulfilled. And really, that is what Stephen is getting at. Jesus is the righteous one. Jesus is the righteous one. We can't obey the law. We need to obey the law. And Jesus fulfilled it perfectly twice. That's what he's getting at with this terminology, the righteous one. He who fulfilled the law. And he did it twice, didn't he? Jesus lived the perfect life. One that no other human being has lived before or since. Perfect obedience. 
And so he earns for us the blessings of his obedience and gives that to us. And then he goes to the cross to pay the penalty. You see, every other deliverer through Old Testament history rescued the people to an extent in spite of their suffering and rejection. Jesus rescues the people through his suffering and rejection. When Jesus was killed, he fulfilled the law perfectly. So the penalty for our disobedience is given to him. The Bible word is imputed to him. And in return, the blessings, the benefits of his perfect obedience, his righteousness, is given to us. He fulfills the law perfectly, twice. I'm coming into the home stretch now. Let me try and illustrate what I'm getting at with an imaginary story, if you like. And a couple of images in a second will come behind us to help me do that. So just imagine a climber. In fact, not really a climber, kind of an amateur walker, the kind of person who goes to Mount Snowden and says, I, could, I could reckon I could just walk up this. And our amateur friend, our amateur climber, uh, uh, <laughs> it, um, ignores the advice that he's given and climbs uh, a different path, doesn't take any equipment with him. I'm told this happens quite regularly in various mountains and hills in Britain, much to the despair of the mountain rescue people. People just launch off with nothing except a phone, hoping their GPS will take them up and down. And our friend does something like that. And sure enough, the mist, the fog, begins to uh, descend. A bit of a scene like this, maybe. By definition, it's foggy. You can't see it very well, because that's what the point I'm trying to make. So it's very foggy. The mist descends, and he really can't see where he's going. In fact, the fog gets so thick, as I gather it can do on Mount Snowden, he can barely see the hand in front of his face. And so what he does is, I'm basically lost now. I can't see where I'm going. I just need to stop. I'm going to have to just stop and not get any more lost. I'll just wait where I am. Maybe I can see out the mist and eventually it'll fade or I'll see the night out or whatever. Then imagine that actually where he's come to a stop, unbeknownst to him, because the fog and the mist is so thick, is a precipice right behind him, a sheer drop. But he doesn't know that because the fog and the mist around him. So actually, the situation is even worse than he had imagined. was more perilous than he imagined. Or than he realized. And then, he remembers, the expert whose advice he ignored about the route gave him a small bag, which he just carelessly tossed in his rucksack. So he goes in his rucksack, pulls out the small bag, and in the small bag he finds a map and a compass and a torch. And the torch is an incredibly powerful torch. It can literally shine through some of that kind of fog. And he can begin to use the map and the compass to begin to inch his way up the hill out of the fog. And of course, if you know anything about Mount Snowden, you'll know that if you climb high enough, you usually can get above the fog and the mist. So originally, he's thinking, I've just got to escape. I've just got to get out. I've just got to get to safety, away from harm. But the torch through the, through the fog, the map and the compass, mean actually he can be, continue to ascend. He comes out of the mist and the fog, and he begins to get to the top of the mountain. And suddenly, he's got a view, perhaps a little bit like that, a glorious, breathtaking view. And I guess my point is this, that the climber was in a situation more perilous than he realized, but with a solution more wonderful than he imagined. And that is the gospel in many ways. That the situation of our inability to fulfill the law is actually more serious than we know for many of us before Christ. And yet in Christ, the solution is even better than we'd ever dreamt of. Tim Keller, who I mentioned before, says it like this. We are more sinful 
and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. And yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. It's both. Being a Christian means that because Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly, so remember that means he obeyed it himself perfectly and paid the penalty for human disobedience himself, both. Because of that, I reckon there are three things that Christians have as a result. Let me close with those. Number one, we are free from relying on law obedience. We're free from relying on law obedience. That has been done perfectly for us. Secondly, we're free from fearing the penalty for law disobedience. That has been paid perfectly for us. And thirdly, we are free to live like Jesus, to be obedient like him. You see, living as a result of the grace of the cross, our disobedience dealt with, and obedience and righteousness given. Living as a result of that doesn't mean that the law is now useless and irrelevant and we get to do whatever we want. Quite the opposite. We're now free to obey God's plans for our lives. We're free to live in what he has planned for us. And you have to read the Sermon on the Mount, one of Jesus' most famous sermons, almost as long as Stephen's. Jesus' commands for how he wants us to live our life are, in some respects, terrifying in that sermon. What he wants for us in terms of how we use our bodies, our our finances, how we treat the poor, how we treat our enemies. It's incredibly daunting. Jesus does not lower the bar in obedience to God. What he does us, what he does is give us his power to fulfill it and obey it. So we're now free to pursue holiness, purity, generosity, sacrificial love. So my I guess closing phrases, the gospel of Jesus Christ is more serious than we had imagined and more wonderful than we had dreamt. I wonder if I could invite the band up to join me. Now, we're going to be sharing communion, which is a wonderful thing to, be, to do together. And in a second, uh, the communion servers will appear to my left and to my right and at the back. So let me just explain to you how that works. Um, to the, my left and to my right are kind of bread and wine. And if... Uh, gluten-free or fruit juice is more your thing, then top right or top left for you is the place to go. Communion is a wonderful meal for believers to share together. It's a wonderful way of expressing our belief in Jesus' death and resurrection, of expressing our gratitude at Jesus' death and resurrection. If you're not sure whether that's you, then I'd encourage you to, to not take the meal for the moment, unless this is the first time for you that you feel this is the moment you want to commit to those things. Taking communion is a wonderful way of making that commitment to Jesus, knowing that he has fulfilled the law perfectly. His obedience and his righteousness is now yours, and your disobedience has been taken by him. And how we do that here is that when the kind of first song starts, we begin to make our way down towards these rows in the front when the communion does appear, and if it's not your thing, then we go towards back. So as and when the communion places appear, do begin to make your way through. We've got some good time to worship together. We've got some good time to hear what else God might want to say. We're going to sing at least three songs or so together. So if you feel like God is bringing other things off the back of this morning or off the back of the sermon, then we'd be good to hear that and hear what God is saying to us. But I'd really encourage you to respond, obviously, by taking communion if you are a believer. And secondly, to work out where do you sit in this gospel picture? 
Where do you sit in this gospel picture of the severity of our sin and yet the true glory and wonder of our forgiveness? Have you, for example, taken, do you take sin seriously as a Christian? If you're not a Christian, do you take sin seriously? Do you realize the severity of a situation to be apart from God and in disobedience from God? If you are a Christian, have you really began to immerse yourself in the total grace of the cross and all that it means? Do you feel like you can live a life free to follow Jesus? Or is there a small part of you that feels you need to do things to maybe just make up the rest of the gospel? If I could just obey a bit better in a few more ways, then I'll complete the package of God's love for me. Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly, completely. He did the whole thing on the cross. There's nothing else that you could or could ever do to make it up. The righteousness that is given to a Christian is complete, whole. That said, the Christian therefore is now free, not through guilt or fear, but to follow Jesus as a radical disciple. Jesus said, follow me. What he meant was, do the things that I do. Do as I do. Treat your bodies as I expect. Treat money, finances, the poor, enemies, friends, the whole package. Do to them as I have done and would do. That is hard. But Jesus frees us up to do that by the power of his spirit. Where do you sit in that gospel? And a prayer team will appear at some point when I ask them to do so, to help us respond. So why don't we stand? I have great faith that communion will appear to my left and right and also to the back. So, let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you have fulfilled the law perfectly. This gospel is in some ways even better than we'd ever imagined. There is nothing left to be done. Everything was finished on the cross. When you said it is finished, you meant it. You achieved it and you accomplished it. And as Christians, we're so grateful for that. But we also want to be obedient to you, Jesus. We want to be like you, perfectly obedient to the Father. Not out of fear or obligation or out of guilt, but knowing that's for our best and for your glory. You've called us to obedience because that's for our flourishing and for your glory. So wherever we sit at the moment, God, wherever we might be, I pray that it's a time of response and communion. You would speak to us to help us live out the wonder of this gospel, either for the first time, or in a new, fresh, free, radical manner. We love you, Jesus. Amen.